calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The fantasy of their day job turns into a living nightmare when the lines of reality are blurred as two B-movie starlets battle movie monsters by day and real monsters by night. Now, if they could only get along with each other. When the cameras stop rolling, the real terror begins. I love Lucifer. Created by Susie Singer Carter and Don Priest. Episode 13, Bonus Feed Drop, Tales of Sada Emadu. This is Susie Singer-Carter. I'm the co-creator, producer, director of I Love Lucifer, the podcast. I also play the role of Holly Clem. If you're listening to this episode, that hopefully means you've listened to all of season one of I Love Lucifer and you're hoping for more. We are too. Tanya and Holly have so much more to accomplish. But before we can dive into the unbelievably harrowing and exciting season two, my partner, Don Priest, and I are focusing on finding a production partner so we can hire a few people to help us bring the season to life and actually get some sleep this time around. (laughs) Until we do, we have some great bonus episodes planned for you. We're going to have more behind the scenes to share, and we're going to have some new one-on-one interviews with our amazing cast. We're also going to share a full episode chosen by the creators of some of our favorite indie audio dramas from around the world. Like I Love Lucifer, these podcasts are independently created, written, produced, edited, and often performed by creative, passionate storytellers who, for the most part, have done so with nothing more than good old sweat equity, all of which is nothing less than a Herculean task. I can attest to that. (laughs) So if you like an episode, please find the link to the show in our show notes. And go listen to the whole series, subscribe, rate, review, and share with your friends. You're going to find your latest binge, and you'll be supporting indie producers like us. In today's bonus episode, we're shining a podlight on Tales of Sada Emadu from Manchester, England. Tales of Sada Emadu is a well-paced audio drama similar to an audio novel with amazing voices provided by the narrator as well as others. It's a series of short stories and character profiles that follow the people of the surviving civilizations of the North Hub. And so now, enjoy Tales of Sada Emadu, Episode 17, The Bark Alingwaora. The 
The following is an excerpt from the journal of Chief Signalman, Olinwa Aura Gallandel Nossiter, that is, adult property of the Gallandel family head in the common tongue. They were part of the holy mission to the North Hub. Chief Signalman is presently missing in action, and this document has been marked for destruction. I have chosen to share it here with the Council of Seventy before its destruction, because it contains some alarming accounts of conduct by the Uruk Helots and by our presiding patriarch. Please leave any questions until the end of the reading. Please begin. The colossal bark cut through the ocean with remarkable speed. The vessel was truly a magnificent craft. Orders of magnitude larger than anything else the crew had seen or set sail upon in their long and storied lives as sailors and marines. The three masts stretched up to the heavens, thick as coast redwood and tall as Neralis cypress tree. The fore and main mast rigged square with sails wide enough to cover the central square in a mile. The mizzen now flitters gently the soft and foreign coastal winds of the North Hub barely able to move it. The whole crew had more than small doubts about their ability to control and maneuver the Leviathan, even with our bloated roster. Not that any of them would utter such concerns, of course. With God on our side, miraculous things can be achieved. And they were. Of course, it was one thing to put the faith in Lord Analor and his ministers in order to set sail on the new and unwieldy craft. It was quite another to sail into the jaws of hell. Had the Nyx let it be known that the Tempest and the Hyperbole were the destination, it was certain that many of the crew would have chosen an early oblation. Both would mean bidding farewell to one's family and to earthly existence, but oblation at least assured you a place at the right hand of the protector. A watery grave or being devoured by the monsters of the deep, whether on orders from the Council of Seventy or not, did not offer this certainty. The path to Analor's grace is narrow, and one can be easily led astray by earthly politics. We Uruks of Analor are not like the weak-willed heretics to the east, of course. It takes a great deal to incite rebellion against the Nyx masters, and there has never been a mutiny. But if ever there was going to be one, it was as the vessel approached the PNR, the point of no return, where no vessel can escape the pull of the Tempest. No sane sailor would venture within a hundred miles of the PNR, except perhaps pirates desperate to avoid the Holy Navy's patrols. There had been a very tense moment when realization dawned upon the crew. No one spoke in dissent. No one moved to resist. No one moved at all. The entire crew were overcome and beset with a sudden paralysis. Certain that they could not refuse, certain that they could not assent, all committing that sin of bad faith, which could convince a person that if they did nothing at all, that they could be absolved of responsibility.
The presiding patriarch put an end to that sort of thinking quickly enough. A simple reminder of the divine power and authority with which he was invested was enough. One of the senior crewmen, or maybe it was a marine, it is difficult to remember all of the new faces on the roster. She'd been ordered to kill a leading hand for insubordination. But she just stood there, her eyes wide, her dark face without expression. She was advanced in age, compared to the rest of the crew, that is. And it was said that her ablation had been suspended to allow her to support this holy mission. The presiding patriarch excommunicated her there and then, and a bolt of wrathful vengeance fell from the clear blue sky. Sent from Analor himself, and killed her where she stood. Such a shame. Had she not taken on this holy duty, she would be with the Lord now, sat at his side and enjoying the bounty of the loyal. Such miserable and tragic irony the mortal realm was beset with. Needless to say, it didn't take the marines long to whip the sailors into order after that. But we needed little encouragement. We all thanked the Lord. I thanked the presiding patriarch in the end. I don't think any of us would have believed the majesty of what we saw if we had not seen it with our own eyes. Those monstrosities beneath the waves, many times the size of deliverance, swam around and beneath our ship as it moved deeper into the tempest pool and further away from the PNR. They stalked almost curiously at first in small numbers. But as the day went by and the numbers grew, their immense size and volume, turning the ocean's surface into a shadowy maelstrom for as far as most dared to look, they became increasingly frantic. They began thrashing about in the water, causing it to roil and roll, stirring up vast waves and unpredictable currents. But the vessel remained steady, remarkably. Indeed, the waters around the craft were entirely undisturbed. It seemed an invisible force surrounded the ship on all sides for a number of meters. This remained impenetrable to anything but the stillest of waters. As the agitation of the creatures grew, they began to emerge from the depths, showing their hellish forms that no man before had lived to describe. They were myriad in their kind. Some had smooth, dark skin encompassing their bodies, but were covered in thousands of small and evil eyes, gaping maws with rows of teeth which reached well back into their colossal heads. There were others, though, that had transparent appeal, where anyone with the constitution to look upon them could see their inner workings. They had long, fat, dark appendages over which they exercised very little control. They were mutable in form. They could transform their bodies in shape and area, inflating themselves like gargantuan puffs so that their surface side would tower as high as the main mast. They were also capable of creating and opening many orifices in their flesh, wherever or in whatever quantity they desired, which they would use to consume other creatures. 
ferocious gales and jets of water from these, which could travel as far as the eye could follow. There were many monstrosities. Some more hideous than those here described. There were those whose visage was so upsetting that sailors lost their mind in the simple act of witness, and whose recounting would serve no other purpose than to horrify another man, and I shall not have that account here. After nearly a seven day, the immense clouds of the tempest filled the entire northern horizon, and the waves began to stretch as high as the Grand Candy and worshipful pagodas back home. These waves would break into mist and nothingness as they made contact with the bowsprit. It was at this time that the beasts turned their attention to one another, and a demonic melee began. A great slaughter. The dark ocean turned on natural shades of red, purple and green as the creatures slew one another in a murderous frenzy. We lost more crew at this time, to a seemingly catching madness. Those affected were confined to a big pending sentence for low moral fiber upon arrival in safer waters. But once the ocean no longer teemed with the eldritch abominations, and they were left in the wake of the deliverance, a most uncanny calm spread through the ship's crew. Whilst the crushing weight and power of the tempest was yet to be confronted, the indomitable might of Analor was clear for all to see, and blessed serenity flowed through the crew. Even the most lapsed and ill-disciplined follower of tenants became devout. Each morning and each night, those not on duty would mass on deck and cry and sing the soft choruses of the meditations and mantras, calling for the Patriarch to bless them, offering their most prized possessions to him as homage and thanks, which he accepted willingly. <laughs> Once we had run out of possessions, we offered him promises and solemn oaths, and this seemed to please him greatly. During the blessings, he would stand in the center of the poop deck. His long, slender arms would stretch out to the heavens, allowing the sleeves of his purple, red, and gold robes to slip down to his elbows. His long, golden hair would flow down to his back, and as he tilted his head back to face the now perpetual darkness of the sky, his locks would touch the surface of the deck. His pale white face and high cheekbones, making him look ever so boyish, betraying no signs of his centuries. When he would speak the words of blessings, he would speak them with a softness, but the words would carry to every nook of this vessel, entering into the mind and soul directly, without ever traversing any intermediate space. The ship and the crew were ready to face anything for him, for the Council of Seventy, and for Analor. I should not write this down, but there were those aboard the ship who whispered the blasphemy that the Patriarch was Analor himself. This sort of heresy, for which mothers would turn in their sons and daughters their fathers on the homeland, was tolerated. When whispered, at least. 
Such was the gaiety and confidence of the crew at this time that the passage into the Tempest was barely marked, and certainly not with the same gravity as the crossing of the PNR. As the deliverance passed from the outflow into the feeder band of the storm, the seas were so violent that it became impossible to see above the waves on any side of the ship. The craft was surrounded on all sides by walls of water, which would peak and trough, exposing yet greater briny mountains in the distance. It would have been quite easy to believe that the vessel was submerged, were it not for the dark skies, swirling with violent and opaque clouds which could be seen as lightning flashed, illuminating the alien environment in blue and white. When the deliverance finally passed into the eye, that's the band of thick fog, cloud, wind and rain which surrounds the eye of the maelstrom. It became impossible to see anything on the upper decks. One could not even locate the end of their nose by sight, and many crewmen were lost. The deck crew, ratings, even a few of the Nick's officers were never seen again, presumed overboard. More of sailors were lost, attempting to replace them trying to ensure the safe running of the ship, of course. It was most fortunate that the passing had not been formed in Mark, and that it had not taken place during the Patriarch's blessings, or I believe many more would have been abandoned to the depths. None of this caused the crew to lose faith. Analor's guiding hand and the presiding Patriarch's miracles had seen the crew safe through the travail so far, on the Patriarch's orders, the deck was abandoned and the crew were told to instead put their faith in the Lord, which they did readily. The galley replaced the poop as the location for prayer, hymns and blessings for a time. As the ship swam placidly through the swirling miasma, it was as if the ship was heaven on earth. There were great feasts, hearty drinking and games, many of the younger single crew married and passed the days with their new wives and husbands enjoying the benefits of matrimony from their bunks and hammocks. The revelry did not hide the absence of the patriarch for long however. The crew had become accustomed to their blessings and whilst it was not uncommon for the patriarch to miss the occasional benediction, after two days the Uruk rating started to become concerned. The officers did their best to reassure them that the presiding patriarch was praying for them from his quarters, and for a time this satisfied us. However, strange occurrences began all over the craft. Reports of apparitions and spectres became commonplace at this time. Accounts often involved the appearance of missing crewmen. The crew would speak to them in strange and threatening tongues. By the fourth day of the Patriarch's absence, the crew were restless and spooked. The Deliverance had begun to experience periods of turbulence. Now, nothing greater than those experienced early in the voyage and nothing that would usually concern an experienced seaman. But the crew were so used to the near frictionless movement of the ship by this point that, without the presence of the Patriarch, stress began to mount. 
A number of Uruk ratings were punished at this time by mutilation for speaking out of turn to the officers. And by the fifth day, the officers themselves began to behave strangely, appearing fearful and no longer displaying their usual coolness and calm. As the turbulence increased and the ship began to creak and groan, we all began to experience pressure behind the eyes. Headaches and nosebleeds became commonplace amongst the crew and even fights broke out amongst the officers as their tempers became increasingly volatile. During one scuffle, a midshipman, his arm was pushed through a porthole on the lower decks into the mist and the light. And when it was returned, accompanied with the most unmanly screams of agony, much of the flesh had been stripped from the hand and wrist. What tissue and muscle remained fell from the arm like slow-cooked fowl. And he died within the hour. By the evening of the sixth day, the crew were once again close to mutiny. Rumours had spread of a conspiracy amongst the Nix officers to harm the Patriarch. Encouraged by our earlier exaltation of him as Analor incarnate. Fortunately, the captain is a shrewd and intelligent man and headed off any form of confrontation or openly rebellious protestation. He promised us that the Patriarch would visit us the following morning and that we should spend the evening cleansing our minds and bodies in preparation for benediction. The entire crew were woken from our beds that night by a sudden explosive crack, followed by a seemingly unrelenting roar. It was said that the sound was deafening, a constant barrage of deep whistling which made communication near impossible and caused the ears of many to begin bleeding. Almost the entire crew were incapacitated all at once, save for those who were already hard of hearing like myself and others who had lost their auditory functions during the last war with Neralis. I truly believe that if it wasn't for my friends and I, all may have been lost. Our group of veteran Uruk sailors managed to push our way through the bark. We climbed over the writhing bodies of ratings and officers throughout the vessel, and we broke down the door to the presiding patriarch's quarters. Here we found the boyish Nix kneeling on the ground in his Spartan room, but he was looking much older and far more worn than he had been six days prior. I remember his luxurious golden hair was thinning and had turned white and grey. His high cheekbones were jutting through his gaunt cheeks, and his hands and face were covered in creases and sagging skin. The Nix's eyes were completely white, with barely an outline of his striking blue irises visible, and his face twisted in a grimace of great effort. We honestly had no idea what to do. We began signing amongst ourselves feverishly, desperately deliberating whether or not we should approach our spiritual leader. Should we try to rouse him from his trance? 
After a few moments of hectic disagreement, one of the others made the decision to move forward. Move forward to the kneeling Nyx. He gently shook his shoulders. As the Patriarch was suddenly released from his dwam, the colour in his eyes returned, and I remember he sharply grabbed one of the Uruk's thick hands on his shoulder, and his expression suddenly steeled in front of all of us, who could only watch on in shock and surprise. Our comrade's form suddenly crumbled into nothing, transforming into a heap of ash beside the Patriarch. We were paralyzed with confusion and horror. We simply gawked as our anointed scooped up the ashen remains in both hands, stood, paced over to the nearest wall and smeared what we could only recognize at the time as our friend's residue against the bulkhead. He traced symbols most delicately with his palms and fingers. It took us a while to register what the symbols were, but we eventually recognized it. It was Elvish, the Nyx language. It simply said, Oblation. By this time, the Patriarch had already started to look healthier, and by the time he had finished writing, the roaring sound which had debilitated the crew, and which we could feel in our chests and heads, had abated. Once the chaos had subsided and order was restored to the ship, the crew were invited into the Patriarch's chambers. As instructed, we attested that the Patriarch was alive, and that he wanted to give the gift of ablation to anyone who would receive it. One by one, the crew were invited to the Patriarch's chambers, and they were invited to join with the Lord Analor, the Protector, giving their strength to him, and helping him to guide our passage safely to the North Hope shores, through the Tempest and the Hyperbole. As I understand it, I am now the only living Uruk to have witnessed the ablation ritual. My friends volunteered to go first, but I am too much of a traditional old salt. I would have considered it a great gift to be sent to the loyal bounty by the presiding patriarch himself, but I am not yet worthy, and I am not yet of age. Perhaps once I have completed this mission, I will ask him to do it personally. We have already unloaded the powder weapons and the majority of the marines to the Citadel, and I do not believe it is long until our mission here will be complete. It's extraordinary. Their castle has its own dock right by the ocean. The Citadel itself is small by the standards of a mall, but the dock is a fantastic idea. The Deliverance is far too big to get anywhere near it, of course. But their sloops turned up to unload the cargo once we hoisted the holy flag of Animal. And now we simply wait. Offshore. How I long to return home. How I long to share this story with Master Gallandell. And the family upon my return. Island in Frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
part two. Listen and enjoy. That's the last of them, boss. Mm. Don't sweat it. None of this will come back on us. People go missing all the time. No one will find them down there. And the fish will eat them up. Heads have been destroyed, so no one will be able to identify them. And the uh, stakes won't be able to get in chatting. Worried about them linking all the missing people to the docks? Don't sweat that. All the boys have been briefed up to say they came and went. We've processed their documents and deliveries. Even had a couple of packages dropped in the smolders. So it'll look like whatever happened, happened there. We'll give the guard a nudge in that direction so they find them. What, what was that, Ryan? Boss, are you alright? Yes, yes, I mean, no. You've seen the ship, haven't you? You mean the, uh, whopping big bastard offshore? Hard to fucking miss, even in low light. You worried about it? Yes, of, of course I am. I had rather hoped the fighting was over when I had the children brought back from Udi. We can have them shipped back out easy enough, boss. Get them out the way till it's all sorted. No need to stress over that. Can send the Ellie with them too. Yes, yes. Something else you wanting to talk about, Dockmaster? Everything turns on a button, Rayan. Every time you think you have a grip on things, the world shows you how futile your plans are. My plans, boss. I had a choice today. I've had a choice every time we've resorted to something like this. Don't think we've ever done this many before, boss. No. Quite. Not what once, anyway. But every time we've done it, we chose to break apart a family, to visit misery on others, to fill this awful world with yet more pain. For what? Uh, for me, boss. So I don't end up as one of them. But I know for you it's so you can spare your family from the misery of being on the receiving end. 
die after sign. Calling and comfort down it. We are deceiving ourselves, Rayan. We are fools. The winds blow and the tides change. We fight and we kill and we tell ourselves that the stacks of bodies beneath us gush into our fall. That's rather deep, boss. And a bit uh, bleak. We're doing alright. Doing what we're doing. Best not to think, look at that colossus. I have never seen anything like it. No matter how big you get, no matter how powerful, there is always something bigger, scarier, just waiting to catch you by surprise. Might as well be a sign from the gods. We are as likely to meet our ends as anyone else. These poor souls we have condemned to the deep. Many of them would have lived lives with joy, love and happiness. Perhaps equal or greater than our own. But they did not visit upon others nearly the suffering that we have. No matter which way you look at it. Ship or no ship. War or no war. We will end up in the same place as them. At the bottom of the deep harbour. Dead, Rayan. All of us dead. I am no longer sure that it's worth it. You are tired, boss. And all this killing and morbid business will put anyone in a sour mood. You should let me and the boys pick up more of the slack. You don't have to do it all by yourself. There's no use worrying about the big things. Just the here and now. That ship come in with the Royal Navy sloops. If the Royals retake the city, they'll still need the docks to run smoothly. And if that wanker, Tebby, is still kicking and wants your lot out, you've got enough money and enough clout set up somewhere nice in the country. Plan for the worst. Hope for the best. But most importantly, get home to the sprogs and your missus. Get that sour face off your chops before you do. No point in having all the nice things and a loving family if you're too tied up in knots to enjoy them. <sighs> you are right, of course. Please excuse my foul mood. Let's get back to the shore promptly. I've still got to figure out how to inform the Dominer about all of this mess. And her daughter's part in it. But once I've done that, we can leave all this nasty business behind us. Right you are, boss. Right you are. We hope you enjoyed this bonus feed drop of Tales of Sada Emadu. If you like this episode, please make use of the link in the show notes to listen to the whole series. Subscribe, rate, and review. And don't forget to rate, review, and share I Love Lucifer with your friends and family. 
Thanks for listening.